so a couple of things. Um, thank you for coming back. Anytime you start a new series and you give the first lesson, you don't know if anybody's ever come back to hear this, the subsequent stuff. So glad, glad you're here. And nothing on TV. I, I can appreciate it. Um, and I, I know a lot of people might show up for a, a Bible study on the book of Revelation with certain expectations, uh, learning certain things about the end times or the Antichrist or the mark of the beast or the rapture, the millennium, um, I don't know, other trigger words in our tradition, traditions. And so we'll, we'll, we'll have a little bit of that, uh, but not tonight. Obviously, we didn't have any of it last, last week either. But, uh, but if you just uh, stay patient and keep on coming back, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll dig out a fair amount worth knowing from the book of Revelation. One, one of my primary goals, actually, in my professional career has been um, <coughs> wanting to rehabilitate the book a bit for the church. I think it, it's been kind of, um, this is going to be an overstatement, but it's been somewhat taken captive um, by the prophecy experts, some of them self-proclaimed. And uh, I'm convinced that it is scripture and it is good for you know, teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness and that it has a lot to teach us about who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, who the, what the church is, about redemption, about the need for redemption, um, about prophecy, um, and, and also about end times. But uh, so last week, uh, we looked at the topic of worship, and tonight we're going to actually look at the topic of the Holy Spirit. So um, let's begin. There are four categories I think we could talk about the Spirit in, four, maybe five, um, in, in regards to Revelation. So four times, this the first, the first of the four, four times John will use the phrase, in the Spirit. He'll say, I was in the Spirit, and he starts to communicate some part of his visionary experience. I think, I think that's used in two different ways. I think in one way, it's a testimony of the agency, the divine agency of his vision. Like he's telling us it was kind of by the spirit of God that I had this vision. But there's, a, there's another way in which it operate, operates at a literary level. And that is John uses the phrase four times. And each time he uses it, he's introducing another section of the book. And... The book of Revelation, as a piece of apocalyptic literature, unlike prophecy, where prophecy would have been spoken, you know, the prophet would have said things, and then eventually what the prophet said would have got written down, and then that became part of the prophetic tradition. So prophecy kind of starts off orally, and it ends up as literature. Apocalyptic texts uh, don't start off that way. They don't start off as oral sermons or oral proclamations, they kind of start off as literature, as, as writing. And so John will use the phrase twice at the beginning of the book, and we'll look at both of those, and then twice at the end. And I've come to believe 
that these are kind of parallel introductions and parallel conclusions. So we'll start off with the parallel introductions. The first time John uses I was in the Spirit is in chapter 1, verse 10. And we've, he's gone through his kind of introductory stuff, you know, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show what was soon to take place. And he did so by sending uh, an angel to his servant John. And he wrote to the churches and all. Um, so John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, it's kind of an act of worship. And perhaps he's even, uh, going back to the topic from last week, uh, perhaps he's even telling us that he was worshiping on Sunday. The Lord's Day, by the way, is shorthand for Sunday. I know there's some that say that all the earliest Christians only worshiped on Saturday, like, like their Jewish predecessors. And certainly I believe that all the earliest followers of Jesus self-identified as Jews uh, or God-fearers still Gentiles who believed in the Jewish faith. But um, very, very early on, as early on at least as Revelation, then also at the end of Acts there's a mention of it, that Christians started to worship on Sunday uh, to celebrate the resurrection. It was the eighth day of creation. So the seven, first seven days, the eighth day is the day of Christ. It's the day of the resurrection. It's the day to kind of celebrate. So he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I, I heard a voice um, like the sound of a trumpet. And so he turns and it says, and he sees, he turns to see the voice, which is in itself already um, a little poetic at, at best, right? You don't see a voice. So he says, I turn, turn to see the voice. And he has this vision of the risen Christ. It's very um, Daniel-esque. Like that is that there's a lot of language used to describe Jesus in chapter one that sounds like Daniel. His hair is white as wool. His eyes are like fire. Uh, there's a golden sash around his chest. Um, there's a uh, sword in his mouth. Uh, his face signs like the sun. Um, he has seven golden stars in his hand and he walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. So that's, that's the vision. Um, I might have left off his feet like burnished bronze, but in any case. Um, when he has this vision, he falls down as though dead. I guess, I guess he fainted. Um, in my charismatic upbringing, we would say he was slain in the spirit. I don't know if, you've, if you don't know what, what that's a reference to, then don't worry about it. But if you do, then ha ha. Um, but then the, Jesus speaks to him and says, don't be afraid. Um, and Mikkel, can I use you as a, as a model volunteer? I will be Jesus. You will be John. Got it. Got it. All right. So we've been told that uh, Jesus has these seven stars in his right hand. And we're told that they're the seven messengers or seven angels of the churches. And then we're told he takes his right hand and he places it on John. Uh, laying on of hands. You like this? Sure. Okay. Laying on of hands is actually uh, an ancient tradition. The Jews did it. Other people did it. It was a way of, act, of prayer, of commissioning. So if he's laid his hands on John, it's real interesting. There is one piece of artwork. One of my favorites, actually. It's a wood carving uh, by Albrecht Dürer 
that shows him laying his hand like this. I guess that's to not dispel the stars, but that's the only piece of art that does it. Everyone else has it the full kind of laying on of hands. So the question comes, if he has seven stars in his right hand, and then he takes his right hand and he lays it on John, what happened to the stars? Yeah, they're on John. Yeah, it's a, it's a commissioning. He lays his hands on him and he says, I want you to write. I want you to write um, what, um, what you see, what is, and what is to take place. And then John writes. So the idea is that which he writes is that which he has just received. That, that he was commissioned, that the seven stars, the seven angels or messengers or messengers have been bestowed to John and now John can write and he writes what we now would call Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, which are the seven messages to the churches. Thank you. No, I'm here now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's the first time he's in the Spirit and he has this commissioning service. There will be another commissioning that takes place kind of in chapter 10, but we'll get, that to, we'll get to that in another week. Um, has, having then written the seven messages to the churches, um, sometimes called uh, seven letters. Not to be confused, though, the seven messages, the seven letters, they never circulated independently. It's not like Ephesus only had the one to Ephesus and Smyrna only had the one to Smyrna and Thyatira to Thyatira, Sardis to Sardis, um, Pergamum to Pergamum, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, and Laodicea to Laodicea. They, they always came in a group. Um, and another reference to the Spirit, they each end with the phrase, whoever has an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. So the idea is that they could be, they could be read together. Uh, there are several things that hold them together as a group. Um, each of them start with uh, a description of Jesus because these are the words of Jesus to the church. And that description comes, at least partially, from uh, the vision in chapter 1. So he had this vision of Jesus. He's, he commissions John to write. As John writes, each of those introductions uh, alludes back to a description of Jesus. He's the one who has eyes of fire. He's the one who has... The, the seven stars in his hand. He's the one who has a face like the sun. Like all of those refer back. So each of the introductions, in a way, point back to chapter one, kind of holding them together as a group that way. And then each of their conclusions, there's a promise to one who will overcome or who will conquer that foreshadows something later in the book. So while the introductions point back, the, the conclusions to each letter point forward. It's just beautifully written, just very nicely done, um, woven together. Um, the order of, of the churches is nowhere near as spiritual um, as I would prefer. Um, but if you're on the island of Patmos, out in the uh, Aegean Sea, and you make your way inland, the first city you come to is Ephesus. And if you stay on the road, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, you know, there's just, it's just the, the next city along the road. That's the order they come in. It's just the, it's just the route. It would be as if, uh, let's say John had his vision on, in the Bahamas, right, out on the islands. And then he came in and he wrote a letter to the church in Jacksonville 
in Tallahassee, in Mobile, in New Orleans, in Dallas, and in Phoenix, right? It's just along I-10. <laughs> um, that's just along the road uh, there. Although, having finished that, John has his second vision, or maybe it's the second part of the vision, but it's the second time he uses the phrase, I was in spirit, and this time he's, he's in the spirit again. He hears the first voice that spoke to him, and he has this kind of uh, vision of the throne room, which is our focus of our lesson last week on worship. Um, chapters 4 and chapters 5, it deals a lot with um, creation and with redemption. And there's this, there's this whole process of, of the scroll and the scroll being sealed and John not having access to it and, and, and the rest. Again, that's, that's another uh, big discussion. Uh, for another lesson. So those are our two openers. There's the Jesus and the churches, and then there's this opening of the story of the lamb and the scroll, and that's kind of, one's very earthly in its orientation, talking about these places on earth, the, the cities and the churches that they're in, and the other is kind of um, heavenly in the sense that it's this kind of throne room vision and there's the lamb and the scroll and such. But fast forward to the end, um, two more times, as it comes to a close, John will use the phrase, I was in the Spirit, and it's word for word the same. I was in the Spirit, and I was um, one of the angels who had the seven bowls, the judgment bowls, came and took me and showed me something. It's, it's really expansive. Um, each of those times that he's shown something, uh, those be, kind of uh, marcator indicate the beginning of these kind of parallel conclusions, and which also have kind of parallel closings. Uh, twice John is said to have tried to worship the angel. Um, that kind of closes those sections off. So again, um, sorry to keep referring to future weeks, but we're going to spend a, a lot of time on the dual, dual conclusion. So we have these four times that John says he was in the Spirit. I don't want to make too much of that in terms of numerology, but John seems to use numbers very specifically. Um, four in apocalyptic literature is kind of the number of the earth. And um, there's a lot of times that John will use phrases four times and only four times. Uh, the phrase the seven spirits, which we'll talk about in a minute, is used four times. His phrase, I was in the spirit, was only used four times. And four was like, um, um, in the ancient world, it was considered like the four points of the compass and the four corners of the earth. It was, this, it was a kind of a symbolic reference to, to the world. Seven, on the other hand, is this number of kind of completeness. And John likes that number a lot too. There are seven churches and seven angels and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven thunders. Um, there's also seven beatitudes. They're not numbered. We're never told they're seven. But to the observant reader, seven times there's this blessed are you if so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, so seven times John will use this next phrase. We call it the hearing formula. Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This idea of hearing uh, first is a very kind of Jewish concept. The, the Jewish mantra, the Shema, starts off with this kind of same uh, admonition, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hearing is not just like your inner ear vibrating at the right frequency for you to hear. Like it's this kind of, it's a deeper concept of listening. Like my father would sometimes say to me, Robbie, are you listening? And I'm like, yeah, I hear you. He said, I didn't ask if you heard me. I was asking if you were listening. There's this kind of implication that I'm paying attention, that um, I'm understanding, and maybe most importantly, that I'm going to heed it. I'm going, I'm, going to, I'm going to obey the instruction. Like the first beatitude is, blessed is the one who reads, because in any given community, you'd only have one Bible probably, right? One copy of the text. Blessed is the one who reads, and those who hear, because we're all hearing, including the reader, right? Blessed is the one who reads, and those who hear, and keep the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. So hearing and keeping go hand in hand. And in this case, we are to hear what the uh, Spirit is saying to the churches. Uh, Jesus uses a similar thing. For those who have ears, let them hear. Um, it's also kind of an echo of the Shema. Um, in this case, though, it's interesting. Do you have a red letter edition? Does anybody have one? You know what I mean by that? It's a... Uh, it's a Bible whose, uh, they, they use red font when it comes to uh, words of Jesus, yeah? So in Revelation, right, the chapters 2 and 3 will be in red um, because, you know, this vision of Christ, he commissions John to write, you know, write while I tell you, and these are the words of the one. That's how the, those letters begin. These are the words of the one who has... Eyes like a fire. Are these the ones who has the sword in his mouth? Um, so it's interesting that all of those chapters 2 and 3 are in the red ink in our red letters editions, but they all end with the encouragement that whoever has an ear should hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So it's this interesting idea. It's very Johannine. Um, we get the same thing in John's Gospel. Jesus says, I'm leaving but the Father will send another advocate, another paraclete, another comforter, another counselor, however we translate the word paraclete. Who is the other one? Well, Jesus is the first one, and the other one would be the Spirit. And it is the Spirit, Jesus then tells his disciples, who will testify of Jesus. Right? Jesus says, they will testify of me. And so that the Spirit kind of tells us about Jesus. And then we're also told that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so in John's Gospel, for the words of Christ, then to be told, to be told that these are the words of Christ, and then to say, listen to what the Spirit's saying, is, is not atypical. The words of Christ, the words of the Spirit, it's like they're in tandem, um, like they speak together. Or the Spirit speaks to us the words of Christ. So, so we get that reference. We get a couple of references. Um, so the first one was, I was in the Spirit. The second one was the hearing formula. Whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says. And then thirdly, we get some references to direct speech. In chapter 14, verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. And then uh, one other example of that, chapter 22, verse 7, the Spirit and the bride say, come. It's interesting that the Spirit will speak the words of Christ, 
So we get that from John's gospel too, right? That the Spirit would speak of me. But then the Spirit also has more to say than what Christ said, which I think is also coming from John's gospel. The Spirit would lead us into all truth. And here the Spirit does say more. The Spirit says they will rest from the labor and their deeds will follow them. And now the Spirit is not speaking in tandem at the end, the kind of eschatological Spirit, the Spirit of end times. is not just speaking in tandem with Christ, but is speaking in tandem with the church. That is, the Spirit and the bride say, come. So, so we get this idea too, both in Acts and in Romans and in Corinthians, that sometimes the Spirit will speak through us. Paul uses this in Romans 8. He'll say sometimes in, in groans and in sighs too deep for words, the Spirit kind of prays through us. Um, so, I mean, think of a sigh. There's not a lot of articulation with a sigh. There doesn't seem to be a lot of deep theology with a sigh. It just sounds like some guys or some gals just worn out. Or a groan. Uh, once again, groans don't seem to be the most articulate form of communication. Oh, I mean, that might have been more of a moan than a groan. Um, yeah. But yeah, we kind of, in our groans, that some, in, our, in our silence, in our sighs, in our groans, the Spirit kind of communicates on our behalf. But then sometimes the Spirit also inspires our words. We say that sometimes in Christian circles. We'll say that a sermon was inspired. Or we talk about the text being inspired. Or sometimes people will say, I felt led by God to do something or to say something to someone or the other. And it is the Spirit kind of doing this. So in the end, it's the Spirit that kind of uh, inspires the bride. And then together, the Spirit and the bride say, come. They're saying, come to Jesus. It's this, it's this hope, it's this request that Jesus will return. And then, of course, they say, come to the world. And again, the idea is, is, is still the Spirit and the bride saying, come, whoever's thirsty, come. Let all those who want to taste, come. So that even our very invitation to others to know uh, the truth or to know, to know Jesus um, is, an, is the inspiration of the Spirit to come. Um, lastly, in terms of uh, the way in which the reference to the Spirit gets used um, in Revelation is this very interesting metaphor or symbol of the seven spirits it's used four times. Um, the first time is in chapter 1, verse 4, where we have this opening um, introduction. Uh, grace and peace to you from, this is John writing to the churches, grace and peace to you from uh, the one who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits that burn before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, the everlasting, da da, da 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 So that firstborn of the dead is just a reference, it's just a poetic reference to uh, a post-resurrection, that Jesus is the first person to have been resurrected. There might have been other people who've come back to life, but eventually what happened to them was they died, right, again. So somebody flatlines in the hospital, you know, clear, 
they come back to life or miraculously. Um, and stories of Elijah, Elisha, uh, stories of Paul, stories of Lazarus, all those people, we believe, they just came back to life. So they kind of went into death and then they came back and they got to live for a while. But then they had to die again. Jesus is not that. Jesus kind of goes into death and then comes out on the other side like he's resurrected. It's the way Revelation will talk about that. Well, Revelation talks about it in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that Revelation talks about that is that he's the firstborn of the dead. So we get this seven spirits that burn before his throne. That's the first thing we hear about the seven spirits. The next time we hear about them is in chapter 3, verse 1. It's in one of the letters. It's in this description of Jesus. Jesus is the one who, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, the next time, that's in chapter 3, verse 1. The next time we hear about it is in chapter 4, verse 5. The seven flames of fire burn before the throne, and they are the seven spirits of God. That's a, that's a very interesting metaphor. It's part of the throne room experience. Um, seven flames just kind of burning before the throne. There's no reference to like a, a, a lampstand there, just these flames. Um, we'll come back to that in a second. And then lastly, also part of the throne room vision, chapter 5, verse 6, the, the Lamb uh, of God, which is Jesus, is described as the one who has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So the seven spirits, we're told, burn before the, the God. They also seem to be possessed somehow by Christ. That's in 1, 4, and 3, 1. And then in the throne room vision, we see the seven flames before God, and we see this lamb that apparently has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So what is this? How are we going to understand it? So some have suggested a couple of options here. Some have suggested that the seven spirits are not a reference to the, to the Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of God, but are, rever, but are rather a reference to the seven archangels of Jewish angelology. So I don't know how much you get into belief in angels and demons and such, but the Jews, they loved it. I mean, they're all about those angels. You know. um, and they're pretty popular, I think, kind of contemporary Christianity. You know, people think they have got like a guardian angel or something or a little angel on my shoulder, a little devil on my shoulder. I don't know, belief, the belief system seemed to be all over the place. But the Jews, they loved their angels and there were seven chief angels or archangels. Uh, Michael, who you know from Revelation chapter 12, Gabriel, who I'm sure you've heard of because of the visits to um, Mary at the Annunciation. But then there's also Raphael, Uriel, uh, Salafiel, uh, uh, Jagudiel, and Barakiel. Those. Yeah, I mean, I can. Uh, you want me to spell them in Hebrew or in, in English? Um, yeah, so those, those, we haven't heard, I think, much of the last uh, five. Uh, huh? Clarence, no, from um, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, he, apparently he hadn't got his wings. He's certainly not an archangel. Yeah, um, he didn't get his wings to the end of that show. Okay, so that's one possibility. Another possibility, some people say, is that the seven spirits are a symbol for the Holy Spirit, and, and, and they argue this in a couple of ways. Some say that the seven kind of represents these seven, uh, the sevenfold spirit. So in Isaiah chapter 11, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is kind of a messianic passage. 
And it's the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fear. Of course, the, the problem, of course, with that is that there's only six characteristics there, not seven, if we're reading the Hebrew. However, if you, if you read, you know, there's always debates about translations. Should we read the King James or the NIV or the ESV or the NLT? Uh, that's not just a modern uh, problem. That's also an ancient problem. People are like, oh, should we read the Hebrew or should we read the Greek? Because the Greek was kind of like, like the... Um, well, actually, it was kind of like the King James Version. It was, it was the older one. It was more established is what the kind of the scholars read. But then, of course, there was the Hebrew text. But in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Isaiah 11 does have seven characteristics. The Spirit of God shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, godliness, and the Spirit of the fear of God. So it adds that kind of final phrase there in the, in the Greek. Well, while all of those are possible, um, there is another possibility uh, that I find most convincing, and uh, that's this. That in Zechariah, uh, another one of the prophetic books, it's one of the three post-exilic prophets. So um, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Um, chapters 3 and 4 uh, deal pretty extensively with um, the priest and the governor, that is Joshua and Zerubbabel, and how the spirit is uh, moving in their lives for them to become who they're to become. So the temple had been destroyed, little history here. Um, they've been taken into Babylon. They've been allowed to return, but this is kind of the, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the prophets of the time start to prophesy, hey, your houses are looking great, but the city wall, not so good. You know, your house is looking fine, but the house of the Lord, not so good. All right. So we got to work on it. And there are a number of um, symbols or metaphors that John will borrow from when he wants to talk about the spirit. There are the seven eyes of God are described in those chapters. Um, two olive trees are described in those chapters. The seven uh, flames are described in those chapters. So in some translations, the seven churches are described as seven candlesticks. Uh, the problem with that is um, candles weren't, weren't invented for another like 1,300 years. And there is no ancient Greek word for candle or candlestick which makes sense because they, they didn't exist, right? <laughs> so um, the word is, is probably better translated lampstand. And when you think of lampstand, when you think, think of the seven churches, you probably should think of menorahs, the seven-pronged lampstand in, in the Jewish faith. So the idea is that they're like the, all these menorahs. Well, this, there was a, at, throughout um, Jewish history, there are various numbers of menorahs sometimes kept in the tabernacle or the temple. But in, Josh, in, excuse me, in Zechariah's vision of Joshua and Zerubbabel, in Zechariah's vision, there's just the one. And that represented the presence of God. And maybe even better yet, the presence of the Spirit of God. If God is with us, then we build the temple, right? Zerubbabel and Joshua leads worship in the temple, the high priest. And they're called the two anointed ones. Um, this idea that there's these almost two messiahs 
priestly, like the high priest, Joshua, and kingly, like um, Zerubbabel, the, the king. Um, all of that, of course, gets folded into how we understand Jesus, that he is our high priest and that he is our king. We often talk about Jesus as being prophet, priest, and king. Um, and again, we, we will spend some time, because in chapter 11, all of this gets folded together again. Um, but there is this passage of Scripture. It was popular when I was a teenager, especially. We even put it on T-shirts, and it was like a playoff of Gold's Gym, except it said God's Gym, took out the L. Yeah, I know it was a little cheesy, but, but that, was, that was our time. And then the, 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 there's a scripture verse under it was Zechariah, right? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But what was not by might, nor by power, but by the spirit of the Lord? Well, in the original context, it's the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Zechariah to the governor Zerubbabel. What's not by might or by power is that Zerubbabel will be able to build the temple. Like he won't do it out of his own means, but the spirit will enable him and he'll get it done. Um, that's what's not by might or power. Um, and that, again, plays out very significantly. Um, so in two weeks, there's that scroll that's sealed and then the lamb can open the seals I believe the land, the, the scroll that gets that is sealed and then gets opened in chapters, you see first see it in chapter uh, five, and then chapters six, seven, eight, and nine are kind of the story of the breaking of the seals. In chapter 10, an angel delivers a scroll to John. I tend to think it's the scroll that had been sealed. And now that the seals are all broken, it's delivered to John. John then has access to it. He reads it, and then he's told to prophesy again, because he'd already prophesied once, right, with the commissioning. And so I, I take chapter 11 to be the contents, or at least John's prophecy about it, his summary of it, the scroll that had been sealed. Unlike Daniel, where the scroll was sealed and just kept, the sealed scroll in Revelation is broken open and then delivered to John, and then John does what prophets do. He says, here's the word of the Lord that I heard or that I had access to. So certainly that's a real teaser for that week to come back and find out what this world said. But I'd like to end tonight before we kind of open to um, some dialogue and questions and discussion in my session tonight, my section tonight, uh, with a bit of a personal testimony. Um, some of this I think I've, I've shared before. Uh, so if you've heard it before, I apologize. But this, this idea of, of Zechariah and the, um, the spirit and the, the two anointed ones, literally translated uh, sons of gold. I, I don't always like to say that, particularly in Pentecostal charismatic settings, because I don't want somebody to think that everybody's going to get rich, because um, I don't think that's what it's talking about. Um, uh, sons of gold, the oil's golden in color. And so it, it's, a, it's like a metaphor on top of a metaphor that they're two anointed ones. But uh, some of you uh, might know part of my story. Uh, when I was 26, my father was killed in a car accident. And it really kind of wrecked me um, in so many ways. Uh, it, was, it was emotionally distra distraught, um, spiritually distraught. 
Um, he was a kind of a friend and a confidant, kind of a safety net, I felt like. If I mess up, he'll catch me. You know, I, if, I, if I don't do well, he can help. So all, all of that was kind of ripped away from me. And um, uh, to be completely honest, writing a PhD in biblical studies is not the most spiritual experience in the world. Because yeah, you're, you're kind of so critical, kind of hypercritical, right? And so, um, I don't know. I was, just, I was just in a horrible spot spiritually. And this is um, the fall of 97. If you had asked me then if I believed in God and I was honest with you and with me, uh, my best answer would probably have been, I don't know. Sometimes yes and sometimes no. So I was um, in a PhD program. What are you going to do? You've got to produce academic work. And so I wrote this paper on the two witnesses from Revelation 11, which are called two olive trees. Um, the two witnesses are two olive trees. And I knew that there was some kind of connection to Zechariah because there are two olive trees there. Joshua and Zerubbabel and two olive trees here. But I didn't have any good ideas. I wrote it and um, I presented it at this seminar, and uh, there was a guy who was supposed to be there. His name was Larry, and uh, Larry was brilliant and could always figure out things the rest of us couldn't figure out. And, and I thought to myself, well, I'll present this at this seminar. Larry will be there. Um, he'll have something brilliant to say. I'll write that in my paper, and then I'll turn it into the university. Now, that's wrong. It's called plagiarism. But if you remember, I wasn't so, I wasn't in a good spot spiritually. You know, I didn't know if God existed, and I was just trying to get through with this degree. And so I show up, Larry's there, I'm delighted. He doesn't say a word. Like, he doesn't open his mouth. Like, if I held his nose, he might have suffocated. And so I'm like, well, Larry's useless. And then a week or two later, I get this email from Larry. And in fact, I don't even know if we called him email then. We might have still called it electronic mail. You know, you know how the how the modem sounded back then. I get this email from Larry, and he's like, "Robbie," because he knew he knew about my dad dying in the car wreck. He said, "Robbie, I think your dad is one of the two witnesses in Revelation, and you need to find the other." If Larry would have been in my office when I got that email, I probably would have punched him. Like, you idiot. Number one, my dad is not one of the, revelation, one of the witnesses from Revelation. He's dead. Uh, number two, uh, I need help. I'm, I'm, I'm writing to an elite university in Europe. What do you want me to say? I think my dad is one of the witnesses in Revelation. That doesn't get you a degree. That gets you Baker-acted. <laughs> I mean, no one believes that. So about a year or so go by, and I'm, I'm doing better, but not great. Uh, several things happened. Um, I ended up teaching a new convert Sunday school class, which is a funny thing to do in the midst of a faith crisis. But I did. And uh, there was one lady in particular whose faith was very palatable, and she means a lot to me, uh, especially then and even now. And, and I kind of, uh, my faith kind of came back to life. Um, through the context of my community. Angela was there, and the church was great, and Wanda was there, like a, like a second mother to me. Um, so 
it's a good year and a half later now. And um, I'm at uh, a worship service, a Sunday night worship service. And there's an evangelist, um, just a special guest speaker. And he's loud and he's hitting it hard. He's like eating his microphone, you know. And he's pacing back and forth on, on the platform. Um, I almost reenacted it for you, but I, I don't think it will. So he's eating that microphone and he's like, <clears throat> I'm looking for a Joshua. <laughs> and again, if you're unfamiliar with charismatic Pentecostal worship sometimes, there is an act of worship called a Jericho march. Now you might guess that has something to do with marching around and shouting to the Lord, but they don't do it outside the building because obviously they don't want their own church building to fall down. They do it inside the sanctuary, which seems even a little bit more ridiculous if you try and make the connections. But the idea is that you march around inside the sanctuary seven times and everybody shouts and hallelujah, praise God. And the idea is not that the actual walls fall down on you because that'd be horrible, but that the, um, the spiritual, emotional um, problems will, will fall before you. So he's up there pacing back and forth. I'm looking for a Joshua. And I'm like, you know, God, I, I believe in you. I feel good. I, I appreciate the fact that you've been gracious to me and you've brought me through this time of mourning and grief. But uh, I just can't get into this stuff anymore. And um, I don't know what that evangelist wants, but I know this. I'm not marching around any kind of Jericho march. That's what I said to myself and to God. So I'm, I'm standing up there. Everybody's like filled the kind of altar area. It's so crowded that you can, there's like not room to kneel. Yeah. So I know what to do. You just keep your head bowed, right? Like if the teacher calls on you, you don't want to make eye contact because then, then they're going to say, hey, speak up. You know, what do you got? So I just keep my head down. And he's like, Waddell. I'm like, I don't think I knew. He knew my name. And so I look up and he's pointing at me and the crowd parts like the Red Sea. At least that's how I remember it anyway. And there are these steps, not, like, not unlike this, that kind of go up on top to a tall platform. So I go up there and I'm still thinking to myself, I like you, preacher. But I ain't leading these people around, <laughs> around this side of these walls. I'm just, I'm just not there anymore. That's not how I worship God. And um, to his credit, he seemed to sense himself that something else was going on. I think, because I'm, I'm convinced he was getting ready to ask me that. But he doesn't. Instead, he lays his hand on me, not unlike I laid my hand on Mikkel, and he prays for me. And um, not much happened then, really. But that night, I'm laying in bed, and as much as I can ever say, I heard God talk to me, not necessarily audibly, but I felt God speaking to me. I heard God say, you are my Joshua. And in the moment, I knew that it wasn't Joshua, the protege of Moses, who led the conquest and marched around Jericho. But it was the Joshua, the post-exilic high priest from Zechariah, who was unfit for ministry. And part of, part of the prophecy in Zechariah 3 
is the prophet saying, change the clothes of the priest. His clothes are dirty. He's unfit for ministry. So they, they change his clothes and they put on white clothes. And then the word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And he has this vision of the menorah and of the lamps. And, and then God says, I have two olive trees, two anointed ones that stand before all the earth. And not to say that I'm interpreting Revelation this way for the church or even for you all, but good old Larry, I think, had heard from God that at least in my life, existentially, my dad was one of the two witnesses, one of the two olive trees. He was Zerubbabel, the governor, who had made a sanctuary for this young Joshua to step into. And so, um, if I step into the classroom at the college, or if I, if I step up on the platform here at the church, whether or not I have a, a music stand in front of me, I feel like I'm in a sanctuary. I feel like I'm, I'm doing what God's called me to do. Uh, my dad very sacrificially um, gave to me and provided the funds for me to do my higher degrees. I could not have gotten them without him, and without them, I could not be a biblical scholar, a college professor that I am today. So, I don't know. I don't expect every, every text to speak to all of us that way, but I do have an expectation that as we read, that um, the Spirit will kind of move in creative ways to make the text, the scriptures become alive in us and to expand them and the, their meaning, meaningful, meaningfulness to us. Um, and so I probably tell this story, I don't know, probably at least once a year, not in the church setting, in the college setting. And it's a good reminder to me that uh, the same God of John the Revelator, the same God of Zechariah in the post-exilic period is God in Lakeland or Winter Haven or Plant City, wherever you folks are from. And um, having ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches is, is not an exact science. I can't always tell you, yeah, for sure, I think you should do this or I think you should not do that. But I think together we can read Scripture, we can pray, we can discern, and that uh, if we listen, God sometimes does speak in specific ways. And that will give us life. Some almost 20 years ago now. 
And I was laying in that little 700 square foot shack. Shack. House. Was 100 years old, so maybe I should call it a shack. I mean, 700 square feet is pretty small for a house. For a standalone house, just four rooms, right? Like two bedrooms, a kitchen slash laundry room, because that's all in the same space. That's where all the water is, apparently. In the, and then a living room that had a furnace in the floor, which the kids always burnt their feet on during the winter. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, 20 years later, and I imagine 20 years from now or 40 years from now, if I'm still living, that... Um, that story will still mean as much to me. Yeah, for me it is. And it's a, it's a real combo between Zechariah 3 and 4 on the one hand, uh, Revelation 11, and then my own journey. So that those, two, those three things kind of form a tripod or trinity of meaning for me. But yeah, so the good question though, um, there are plenty of trumpets, horns um, that get blown in Revelation. It's a very musical book. Um, lots and lots of symbols. But those, those, those horns are like animal horns. Yeah, great question. We're not sure. Um, yeah, uh, the problem is, is that uh, there's a, some ambiguity. John's a pretty popular uh, name. I mean, it is now, actually. It's a popular name back then, too. And um, there's not a... The, the text never claims apostleship. Like a lot of the other, you know, Paul the Apostle writes to you, da 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 da, da. There's never John the Apostle. Like he, do, he doesn't self-describe like that. Um, which kind of leaves it a bit ambiguous. So it's a different John. Mm, nope, not necessarily. It's just ambiguous. Like we, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, at the end of the day, I, I'm not sure that's the most important thing. Um, it is interesting that Patmos is sometimes assumed that he was kind of exiled there. But um, there were penal colonies on the islands in the Aegean at the time, but Patmos was never used as one. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not altogether convinced that the place that you go to on Patmos is, is where John was, per se. Um, I mean, tradition, I mean, I love old churches. You know, when you go see the Holy Sepulcher or the Church of the Primacy or the Church of the Nativity, those are, those are great places to go commemorate those events. Uh, whether or not that's exactly the place the events took place, maybe, maybe not. But we're here to commemorate it, not necessarily. I mean, you're in the neighborhood, anyway. And um, being on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God is what it says. Could mean a lot of different things. He could have been evangelizing there. Testimony of Jesus, word of God. He could have been exiled there. 
he, he could have been on a retreat, you know, like getting away, praying. Um, what, I mean, whatever. He seems to have easy contact with the churches. So, yeah, um, not sure uh, how old he was or not sure too, Catherine, whether or not he just had a, a vision one night and then got up the next day and wrote this thing or if he had multiple visions and he's kind of pieced them together. Um, I mean, how do, you, how do you interpret such a thing like this kind of crazy vision dream stuff, right? I mean, I, some people think he's just writing in this genre and that he is um, not necessarily having visions. I, I, I tend to think, I, I have no reason to think he wasn't. I mean, even if the, the genre is kind of used that way. No, nah, I don't know for sure. Yeah, at the end of the day. Oh, I actually think he he did write it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've read those arguments, um, but uh, I don't find them persuasive. It it um, it holds too tightly together. Other texts that have had a lot of hands on them show editorial edges, um, and this doesn't seem to have them. It's it's really it's really it's a smooth, tightly knit together narrative. Um, so I tend to think he probably did write it all. I just wonder why he has such credibility if, to get, make it into the Bible. If... Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, I mean, uh, the Gospels are anonymous, too. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts is anonymous. Um, of, ironically, of the five books that we call John books, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation, the only one that doesn't have the name John in the title is Revelation, and it's the only one in the Bible actually says it's written by a guy named John. <laughs> it's the Revelation of John. I, John, write to you. So 2 John and 3 John, the author self-identifies as the elder. 1 John is, is utterly anonymous. And 4 John is also anonymous. I mean, it says that it's based on the testimony of the beloved disciple. But then interestingly enough, it never says who the beloved disciple is. Yeah, yeah. So um, certainly metaphors, Lamb of God is, is, you don't hear that all throughout Scripture, interestingly enough. Not the New Testament anyway. It's kind of unique to both the Gospel of John and Revelation. The whole um, river of life and water of life, all of that language, again, is just Revelation and just um, the Gospel of John. Not the Apostle. Not the, yeah, so there, there, is, there is talk of, of another John, um, John Mark, who was um, a cousin of Barnabas um, and companion of Paul and then later Peter. Um, the Galilean, who's the apostle, is not related to Jesus, the brother of James, son of Zebedee.
Uh, well, well, John Mark, who we think wrote Mark, um, was perhaps younger and from Jerusalem, apparently, and um, was a, temporarily both a companion of Paul and of Peter. <coughs> yeah, his mother's, his mother's home, yeah. All right, friends, uh, thanks so much for coming out on a Wednesday night, and uh, we'll see you again next week. I don't, I don't have the schedule in front of me. I don't know what next week's about. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that one. Israel and the people of God in the book of Revelation. It's all that 144,000 and the great multitude. It's a, it's a good read. Huh? Uh, well, it's where we're coming back next Wednesday to talk about. Okay, all right. Let me, let me pray for us before we depart. Lord, we love you. And uh, we're grateful for um, your scriptures and uh, we're even more grateful for your spirit. Um, Lord, I do pray that you would give us ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. And uh, like, like John um, and, and the rest of the church, that uh, we would, um, in tandem with the spirit, uh, pray. Uh, for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.